You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Good morning, and once again, welcome to uh, Online Worship. Thank you for being with us again. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. We've titled this series, The Real Jesus. I made a fun but interesting discovery this past week. Did you know that Jesus asked way more questions than he answered? In fact, when you read the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have record of Jesus asking people 307 questions. In addition, he was asked by other people 187 questions, but here's what I find remarkable. Out of those 187 questions that people asked him, he only directly answered those questions three times. And so it begs the question, why so many questions? Well, Jesus is, of course, the master teacher, and he wants to engage us. He wants to engage our mind. He wants to engage our heart, our our person. He wants us to lean in, to participate, to think about God, his will for our life, to get to know him. And so this morning, we come to a text that is chock-filled with questions. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And I want to draw your attention to the first question. Now, this question was asked by a religious leader, and it's real interesting. He asked it with kind of mixed motives. It says he's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to trick Jesus. So let's look at our passage. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And so what we read is, just then, an expert in the law stood up to test him or tempt him, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what I find interesting, too, is that's not the only time this specific question was asked Jesus. In Luke 18, 18, we have a ruler coming to Jesus, and look what he does. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I just want to pause for a moment and think about the importance of this question. It is enormously important, folks. I would suggest it's one of the key questions in all of life that everybody asks at some point in time. You know, when you look at the world religious systems, they certainly have asked that question and yet have tried to answer it by creating systems of of things you do to to prepare for eternity. When I think of 21st century postmodernism, they've asked that question and answered it also. And their answer is pluralism in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious context. We believe as pluralists that many roads lead to one, to eternity, to God. And of course, Christianity has a totally different message. And so before we move on, let's personalize this question. It's a question that I think is a very personal question. I remember in junior high, the first time I... uh, remember asking such a question was when my biological father passed away. He died with cirrhosis of the liver. And I wondered, what happened to dad? Where would he go for all eternity? Would he be in heaven? And then the question got much more personal. 
What would happen to Keith Missile when he died? Is there an eternity? Is there life after death? And in junior high, folks, I had no answers. Now, what Jesus does, again, the master teacher, he addresses the question with another question. So let me draw your attention, if I may, to uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 26, which reads, Jesus replies. Now, again, this guy's an expert in the law. What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? Now, when the Bible says that this guy was an expert in the law, basically what we're saying here is he knew his Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, but especially the Torah, what's called the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so how does he answer? It's a real interesting answer. He gives kind of a hybrid answer. He takes Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18, and he sums it up. Why Deuteronomy 6.5? It's called the Shema of Israel. It's the most holy text for Jews recited daily by those who are religious. Why Leviticus 19.18? It, it shows how we're to love our neighbor. And so look to our text then. Here's his answer. It's kind of a synthesis of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Luke chapter 10, verse 27. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and then Leviticus, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice how Jesus responds to the answer. Uh, verse 28, <clears throat> Jesus says, you have answered correctly, and here's the key to this whole passage and the key to the parable. He told him, do this, and you will live. So what does Jesus do? He says, listen, you got an A on the exam, you passed the test, now all you have to do is live it out. That directive from Jesus, do this, is the key to understanding this beautiful passage and parable. But again, it begs another question, what does it mean to do this? And so we've already seen the answer, folks. It comes from the Old Testament Torah. It comes from the law of God. What, what Jesus basically is saying is keep the law. Go back to Deuteronomy. Keep the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God, how? With all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then in addition, love your neighbor, how? As yourself. Now the verb here, love, is in the present tense, which simply means to love constantly, to love continually in an uninterrupted way. Love God and love your neighbor like this. In essence, Jesus is calling for him to keep the law perfectly. Folks, please don't miss this. By loving God and loving your neighbor without ever a breach or violation, anyone who keeps this perfect standard, Jesus says, will live forever. In other words, Jesus is calling for him and for us to live the law of God perfectly. Now, you might think that's unusual. It's not. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and verse 48, Jesus says this, uh, chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what happens to this religious expert? He's caught in a pickle. 
He knows, like all of us do, that we do not love God perfectly. We do not love our neighbor as ourself. He knows, like we know, that our natural tendency is towards sin and not others, is towards self and not righteous perfection. So, now that he's busted, how does he respond? His hand is caught in the cookie jar. Does he respond with brokenness? Does he let the law of God, which is to be a tutor to show us our sin, break his heart? Is he convicted that he falls so short from loving God perfectly and loving his neighbor perfectly? Does he cry out to God like the psalmist, search my heart, O God, try my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me, lead me in your way everlasting? Well, sadly, friends, his response is just the opposite. Look at your Bibles, if you would. Luke chapter 10, verse 29. And this is an incredibly sad statement. It's tied to the issue of his motives, testing, tempting Jesus. And he says that, and the scripture says this. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now we get to the heart of the issue. Once this religious leader's sin and shortcomings are exposed, you know what he's doing? He's leaning towards self-justification. Now, lest we be too hard on this fella, this has been the narrative of humanity from the beginning of time. You go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, they eat of the forbidden fruit, they run and hide from God, and God lovingly pursues them. And he, and he speaks to him, hey, Adam, hey, Eve, where are you? What are you doing? Do you remember what Adam said? The woman you gave me, she's the problem. Remember what Eve said? It's the serpent. He tricked me. Going back all the way to Genesis, Adam and Eve trying to justify themselves, pointing the finger, playing the blame game, and for all History, that is humanity's defaults. So here's how it works for this religious leader. He now uh, is caught. He sees his sin. He's not broken over his sin. And so he pushes back. And that's why he asks this next question, who is my neighbor? Now, what's real interesting about this question, again, I think... Uh, going back to the first century, gives us a little bit of a cue of why he asked this question. You see, the Jewish people had a very limited view of who a neighbor was. Certainly their countrymen, the Jews, certainly family, extended family, but boy, it was so limited. And so this guy asked this question thinking Jesus is going to give him a pass and make it easy. Yeah, I love my family. I love my kin. I love my countrymen, the Jews. But their limited view excluded Gentiles. It certainly excluded lepers. It certainly excluded tax collectors and the hated Samaritans. And that leads us, of course, to uh, this amazing um, parable and teaching. And so Jesus presents the parable of what I would call the perfect Samaritan with the backdrop of a very religious man purposing his personal self-justification before God and others. Now, 
I hope you see the tension in this passage. First, he comes as a religious expert testing and tempting Jesus. Now he is trying to argue that he has spiritual credentials and that God should accept him. And so what does the master teacher do? He tells this parable. And it is a beautiful parable. And what I want to do is I want to show you how wonderful Jesus was in teaching and in clarity. What Jesus does in the parable of what I call the perfect Samaritan, he goes literal and he chooses geography, he chooses history, he chooses culture to help people capture what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. I'd like to take a few moments and show you a few visuals because it's beautiful. Uh, the first visual here is a place called the Wadi Kilt. And we go from Jerusalem in the east to Jericho in the west. And what you're going to see is a very rugged area. This is the wilderness of Judea. But this is literally the road that Jesus is referring to. It's called the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's 17 miles. You could hike it in a day if you started early. But this was a road that was traveled in the ancient world and a road that is traveled today. Culturally, it was known as the blood road. Why? Literally, what happened is in history, there was a lot of bandits, a lot of robberies, a lot of people that were hurt in that day. Let me show you another visual aid if I could. Rome built uh, a, ro a road system called the Appian Way, and here is a picture of that literally coming out of the Wadi Kilt. So just picture, here's this guy traveling this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and a uh, band of thieves, a band of robbers, accost him, beat him up, strip him. He's naked, and what happens? Uh, some religious people come by, Jesus says. First, a priest, the priest of all people who led worship in the temple in Jerusalem should have supported him, helped him. What happened? He just walked on by. Then, a Levite who was a servant to the priest in the temple. Well, if the priest ain't going to do it, how about the Levite? How about the servant? Well, he walks on by too. And then the great twist in the story is this, folks. A Samaritan comes by. Now, I'm sure the religious experts said there is no way in the world that this guy's going to help. But what does he do? He stops. He shows compassion. He cares for the guy. He blesses the guy. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn. He gives the innkeeper a couple of denarii. That would uh, care for him for two months. He stays overnight with him, tells the innkeeper, I'll come back, and anything it costs, I'll, I'll bless him. And so let me show you uh, a picture from the 1900s. This is the place that commemorates this Good Samaritan site. And so right on the Wadi Kilt, there's this inn, and, and it's a place that uh, people, you could go to even today. Now, what's the twist in the story, folks? The twist in the story is this. The one who should have helped was the priest and the Levite, not the Samaritan. But who does help? It's the Samaritan. Now, one of the things that we have to know culturally and historically about Samaritans is John chapter 4, Jews and Samaritans had no relationship whatsoever. Why is that? Well, the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. 
when Assyria conquered the 10 tribes of the north, there was intermarrying between Gentiles and Samaritans. And so the Jews just counted them out. The, the blood was spoiled. They're not pure Jews. And then there was a huge rift. When Judah came back from Babylon, rebuilding the walls and the temples, the Samaritans wanted to help, and the Jews said no. And then a guy named Sanballat worked hard to oppose the rebuilding of the walls and the temple. And then the Samaritans built their own temple. They built it in Gerizim. And in 128 BC, a high priest named John Hyrcanus and his armies destroyed the temple. And then in 9 AD, the Samaritans revolted and, and took bones from uh, dead people and threw it in the temple of God. And the rift between the Samaritans and the Jews was enormous. And so what is Jesus doing, folks? He is saying this, basically. He is saying that to love uh, your neighbor as yourself is to do something that was over the top so extraordinary. Primarily, Jesus is answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer is, live perfectly like the Samaritan. The answer is, love God perfectly with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And of course, the biblical record is, none of us could do that. Jesus wants us to know in and of ourselves we could never live like this, as hard as we try. And so all through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see that Luke is relentless. He's saying performing religious duties, keeping religious rules and regulations, checking every spiritual box, keeping cadence with codes, executing traditions, enacting a list of do's and don'ts, and trying to live the law perfectly can never happen. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's why in Romans 3.20, the Apostle Paul said this, for no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. So Jesus tells the parable of the perfect Samaritan to demonstrate our spiritual bankruptcy and that there must be another way to inherit eternal life. What is that way? Well, Luke has already told us. Let me take you back to Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Powerful statement. Jesus forecasts his death, burial, and resurrection, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Friends, our justification doesn't come from our good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so no one will boast. Our justification is never in keeping the law perfectly. James, the brother of Jesus, says this in verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. Our justification is not the result of loving God or loving our neighbor perfectly. Why? That's impossible. And so where is our justification found? It's found in the finished work of Christ at Calvary. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 is such an important verse. And it summarizes everything Jesus wanted to teach here in this beautiful parable in this encounter with this religious expert. Paul wrote, he made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, that's one of the most beautiful and powerful verses in all of scripture. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made righteous. Jesus is the perfect Samaritan. That's the picture we have all through the Gospel of Luke. He lived compassionately. He lived mercifully. He lived generously. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He gave his life a ransom for many. Justification is the act by which God declares individuals perfectly righteous on the basis of Christ's finished work at Calvary. And so may I ask, and these are such important questions, are you trying to justify yourself by what you do for God? You know, for many years, I thought growing up, because I had a little bit of a religious background, if the good outweighed the bad, boy, God will accept me. I mentioned already in junior high, I had no hope for eternal life. I just didn't have answers. But then at age 19, for the first time, I heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God did something for me that I could not do for myself. I couldn't live the law of God perfectly. I couldn't love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and certainly love my neighbor as myself. And so if I couldn't do that, if I couldn't keep the law perfectly, there must be another way, and there is another way. It's the finished work of Christ at Calvary. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. On Calvary, Jesus said, it is finished. And it begs the question, what is finished? It's the work that God accomplished through Jesus Christ at Calvary. His death, paying the penalty for our sin, satisfying God's justice. His burial and resurrection from the grave. He lives today. He is the Savior. And so, folks, the privilege that we all have is we can stop working we can stop performing and doing, and we can put our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ at Calvary. When I was 19, I made that decision. It was the best decision of my life. God birthed in me a faith to believe in his son, to trust him, the work that he did on my behalf. And I remember that evening, specifically calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. And I called upon the name of the Lord by praying, a prayer of faith. And if you're watching this morning and you want to put away doing and begin trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to invite you to say yes to Christ. And what does it mean? It's real simple. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I want to turn from my sin, and I want to turn to the Savior. I want to trust you. So if it's your desire today to put your faith and trust in Christ, I invite you to pray to the Father this prayer in your heart. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, 
thank you that you did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Today, Father, I confess I'm a sinner. I turn from my sin, and I put my faith and trust in Christ and his finished work at Calvary. Father, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I thank you today for your forgiveness, and I ask you to help me live for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.